Thank you. Dave, Pam, that was awesome. I have a lot of information that Bob gave you earlier, so make sure you read your bulletin carefully. Today is the last day to sign up for membership class, so if you're interested in that, you have to have all the material done and read by next Sunday morning. How many of you are eligible to vote? Raise your hand. I mean, how many of you are eligible to vote? I'm not going to ask you, but I assume by your raised hand, you will vote Tuesday. Yep. Good. Thank you. You need to do that. A lot of people have paid the price for the freedom that you and I enjoy so easily and so richly on Tuesday. So please make sure you take advantage of that. Don't be conceit or deceived in thinking, well, it's not a really big election. They're all important or we wouldn't have them. So make sure you vote Tuesday. I worked at Poles in Winfield Township, and I'm intrigued by the fact that we're so close to Concordia. They literally bust them in, one after the other after the other, on Tuesday afternoon to make sure they all vote. That generation knows the legitimacy of that decision to vote. Please make sure you do it wisely and well. Ten minutes after the sermon is over, family experience today for kindergarten to fifth grade. So get your kids and be able to learn the value of the month. We're going to talk about honor, which is a perfect Sunday to do that. Next Sunday and today, we're going to wrap up our series. I've, I've got to get this back. So we're going to wrap up our series. I know. You don't want to know where I took it from. I didn't. I didn't. So I don't want you to go out and say, are you kidding me? He's going to speak on thou shalt not steal here recently, and I know it's going to be. We're talking about Ten Commandments. You have your sermon notes in your bulletin. I encourage you to take them out. We are looking at God's great guidelines for life that he's given us out of this particular context here in Exodus chapter 20, but it goes well beyond that. As I said in my prayer, the word of God says that heaven and earth will pass away, my word never will. So it's that important that God preserved it for the last five, 6,000 years for you and I to understand the things and the lessons that he wants to teach us. Now you've got to remember, these words were given not to God's people as a way to get them to gain his favor, but as a way to live out the freedom that he's already blessed them with. They're not restrictive at all. You may read them that way, but they're not restrictive at all. They're protective. They were given to keep us on the right path and to keep us from going over a dangerous cliff that God knew, if we weren't careful, was going to destroy us, and not only destroy us, but the people around us. So I said to you the last number of weeks, every time you see one of these, and you're going to see them everywhere, and rightfully you should, every time you see one of these, I want you to say, God, thank you for giving me guidelines for life. Thanking you for, thank you for keeping me on the right path. Thank you for telling me what's going to happen if I don't take advantage of all that you've promised me. If I decide to go out on my own, do my own thing, thank you for reminding me how dangerous it is to do that. Every time you see one of these, you're going to see them everywhere. Thank God for it. That's what these guardrails stand for. A lot of people don't like guidelines. They want to live in their own world, do their own thing, but without them, we end up in chaos, or we end up like the people in the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we don't want that. Now, of course, here in America, we are blessed to have Oprah, the ladies at The View, and Taylor Swift to know us what to do and how to think. Yeah, it takes a while to get that one. I just think God has a way better way, and we need to listen to that. Any of you, by the way, know what this is called in Formula One racing in Europe? They just hit the Armco. Some of you knew that? Yeah. 1924, they've been there ever since. But even in Formula One racing, somebody told me still to this day, when they hit this, they say they just hit the Armco or Armico, however you want to say it. <laughs> now, I said last Sunday morning, we're moving in a progression, and the progression is incredibly important. When God says, I want you to make sure that you have no other gods before me, I want you to put me first, I want to make sure that you understand when you call yourself Christian, there's a lot of weight that goes with that. 
When you say you're a follower of God, you need to know that you're representing my name everywhere you go. And when you say you're a follower of God and say you're a Christian, it's just not a name or a tag that you put on yourself. You are identifying yourself with me. You are saying, I'm representing God everywhere I go. You haven't seen God. I haven't seen God. You weren't there when Jesus died. You weren't there when he taught. So none of us have literally seen God. None of us have literally seen Jesus. But when we claim to be followers of God and Christians by our name, that means we're representing God everywhere we go. So he said, you need to understand the weight of that. Or don't use my name. Look, I know how you're wired. So I want to help you. I want you to, every week, set aside a day. Just stop all the other stuff that's distracting you. And make sure you understand and recognize who I am, what I did, where you are. And just stop and enjoy what I've given you. Out of the positive relationship with God then flows a good relationship with people. And again, that order is absolutely critical. You don't have a good relationship with people or the people around you and treat them, well, God, I don't lie, I don't cheat, you're going to like me, right? God, I haven't lied, I haven't killed anyone, I don't bear false witness, I don't covet. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? He's saying you got to understand it's the other way around. You make sure you're okay with me because when you're really okay with me and you understand all the other things in the first four, then all of these are going to come much more natural. You won't be perfect. But they will come much more natural because you understand the progression and why it's so important to start here first. And then out of that come these. Now, the ones we're in this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. They're really fun topics. Thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. Anyone want to teach for me this morning? <laughs> uh, they're pretty heavy and a lot of weight that goes with that. When I read them, I'm going to do them one at a time. When I looked at the one thou shalt not kill, I had a number of thoughts that run through my mind. One is finally one I know I can keep. <laughs> one I know I'm not going to wrestle with. One I know I don't have to repent of. I've never killed anyone. And I find myself, if I'm not careful, being able to relax a little bit on this one. Haven't murdered anyone. I don't plan to, although I find it intriguing that it comes right before don't commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Now, we can even, if we're not careful, be a little self-righteous on this one, but we live in a society where life and death is every day in front of us. And then not just life and death by sickness and illness and all those things, although that's there, but people are destroyed and lives are destroyed and families are destroyed every single day. I mean, every time you turn on the news, every time you read the paper, somebody's life has just changed forever. Over and over again, story after story, city after city, area after area, people's lives have changed dramatically. Some that we don't even know about, hundreds of thousands of people all over Africa destroyed. Lives have changed, families have changed because of hatred and animosity and some of the things we're going to talk about here this morning. My favorite aunt was killed by a jealous neighbor when we were kids. She died in my dad's arms and her family was changed forever. When I thought of thou shalt not kill, I thought, well, what do you do with the issue of war? What about self-defense? What about capital punishment? Especially when I believe there are just causes for all three. But as I began to research it, I found out this is what it really means when it says thou shalt not murder. You shall not take without just cause the life of the innocent in your sermon notes. Now that makes sense. And when I hear that definition, one of the first things that comes through my mind is why we have such a strong stand against abortion. You've probably seen the new technology that comes out with the sonogram that makes such 
3D, 4D, I don't know what, incredible clarity. It's just hard to believe that anyone could not see it as life and still want an abortion. I know you know this, but on 9-11, over 3,000 innocent lives were taken in one moment, in one day, in an act of terrorism. Every single day, 3,000 innocent lives are snuffed out by abortion. And the end doesn't even seem around the corner somewhere. Do you get the weight of those two? And what goes with that? When we look at this command, thou shalt not kill, we've got to remember that God isn't giving this command to criminals. He's giving it to people who are called the children of God. It was the people who consider themselves the children of God who basically consider themselves as good people that Jesus addressed as well when he brings fast forward all the way to the book of Matthew. In chapter 5, as he begins to share with them some truth to live out what he is now here to call them to do. What we see it in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't call it that. We do. And all of a sudden, these people began to hear about this Jesus and his teaching, his Messiah that was coming, and maybe he's the one. And so they began to come by the droves. They saw them gathering there and got in a place where they could now hear him. And in that context there, if you're ever in Israel, you see it's almost an amphitheater effect. And he's able to see everyone, and they're able to hear him. And he begins to tell them some of the things he's now calling us to do. And those who are going to follow him and follow his teaching, they need to clearly understand what that looks like. And so he begins to teach. It's a really long sermon. You think mine are long. This is a real chapter after chapter sermon that he's getting them to. He comes to a point here in Matthew chapter 5 when he reminds them of what they heard back in the Old Testament. You should not murder. And you've heard it said to people long ago that you shall not murder. And anyone who murders is subject to judgment. Now, everybody who's hearing that, for the very first time they're hearing him say that, they're going, absolutely. We need law and order. It needs to be justice done. But then he continues. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. And again, I need you to understand that if you say to your brother or sister, Raka, you're answerable in court. And anyone who says you fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, all of a sudden, you've got to imagine what it's like to be in that context for the very first time. And they look at him and say, are you kidding me? I mean, I get the first, thou shalt not kill. You're telling me that if I get angry, that's going to happen? Do you all preachers exaggerate that much? Do all preachers try to get our attention by going over the edge with some of the words they're saying? You can't be serious that that's what you're saying. But he is. And apparently and very uncomfortably, if we're not careful, murder hits a little bit closer to home than we think. For while it may not be in our hands... It may be living in our heart, and at times will proceed from our mouth. Jesus in this text gives us the primary ingredients for murder. Rage, malice, which is the intent behind the word raka, and contempt, which is behind the phrase you fool. Now you mix those ingredients together, and you've got murder. You won't have a body bag to go with it. But you need to understand, not only can you kill with a knife or a gun, you can kill with words, dripping with hate and anger stored up for years. The Proverbs writer said, you need to understand the power of the tongue. It has the power to give life or to bring death. Now, that's a pretty dramatic statement. And it's a pretty dramatic context. But he said, you need to understand the tongue, that little three-inch, two-inch thing in your mouth, has the power to give life to someone 
but it also has the power to bring death. And some of you sitting here this morning have been a recipient of that kind of explosive anger that sometimes comes out of nowhere. And maybe even in your own thought life and maybe even off of your own lips. For all of a sudden, the rage wells up inside of us and we explode. One example of that is what we call road rage with vehicles, complete with sign language for the hearing impaired. (laughs) Most of you had it happen at one point or the other, and, and maybe you felt this rush of emotion that goes with it. And the rush of emotion is love. Thank you so much for pulling out in front of me. I was wondering how I was going to be able to slow down enough, so thank you for doing that. I ride a motorcycle that's 800 to 900 pounds. And on my license, it says I'm 198. I don't care what that thing at the doctor's office says. I'm 198. (laughs) And you look at an 800-pound motorcycle and a 200-pound, 198-pound guy (laughs) sitting on top of it with chrome flashing everywhere, and you wonder, how do you not see that? How do you pull out in front of that? How do you stop so fast? How do you just come across like it doesn't exist? And that's only one example of what I see. And I'll be really honest with you. I don't always feel love when they do that. I don't want to kill them. But there's that thing inside of us every once in a while, if we're not careful, will rage inside of us. And if we're really honest, we need to understand the weight of that. And if in your sermon notes that is left unchecked and uncontrolled by the Spirit of God, it can mix together at the wrong moment like chemicals in a lab class and explode and someone standing in the way in your notes catches the fallout. Could be a co-worker, could be a family member, could be your kids. I've seen it happen. I honestly have. To husbands, to wives, to children, to employees. You know, when we talk about words, you're also going to know that we have to talk about gossip. Because someone said gossip is another way to murder suburban style. Where you assassinate a person's character with words. With something you know and I know we shouldn't pass along. Even if it is true, it really doesn't matter that we pass it along to somebody else. Because you know and I know that the reason we're doing that is to make them look worse than us and make us look better than them. And it really isn't necessary. But it can destroy a person, it can destroy a family, it can destroy a church. Proverbs 6, I know it's in your sermon notes. There are six things that God hates, the Proverbs writer said. Wait, 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 wait a minute, no, that was actually seven. That are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, proud, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. You see how these tie together with the commandments? A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Matter of fact, I love the New Testament writer. He said, just stay away from stupid controversies. I mean, just don't bring all this stuff up. Even if it's theological, there are just some things that are not worth discussing. James chapter 3. James got just a few chapters to write to this, old, this brand new Christian church to help them understand how to live the life that Jesus had just died for and called them to as he rose from the dead. He spends a half a chapter, almost a whole chapter, talking about the tongue. He said, I need you to understand the weight of this. The tongue is a fire. A world of evil, if we're not careful, among all the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it is itself set on fire by hell, in verse 8, full of deadly poison. And you know and I know that deadly poison 
can kill. One of the things that this command does, it reveals God's love for people. And his protection of them. I know you know this, but people matter to God. We've been made in the image of God. Genesis 2 said God breathed life into us. And murder strikes at that image. We can never underestimate the value or worth of people. God so loved the people of Community Alliance Church that he gave his one and only son. Is that how it says? No, this is, I know. It says, God so loved America that he gave his one and only son. Does it say that? No, what does it say? God so loved the world. God so loved the world. And it wasn't the globe that spins around the sun or with the other planets. God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son so that we could have a life. People, believe it or not, that look different than you and I. People that think different than you and I. People that act different than you and I. Even people, believe it or not, that believe different than you and I. God so loved humanity that he gave his son. And you and I can never, ever think that it doesn't matter that I do something or say something about someone that destroys their life or hurts their life or puts them down. When Jesus said, I want you to use your words to build people up, not tear them apart. Going to move to the next one. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. In the sanctity of marriage, and you'll see how they tie in together. You shall not commit adultery. I said before, there's no other institution has the ability to bring us more joy and more heartache and pain than the family. Some of the most amazing moments of your life come within the context of family. Having children. <laughs> in the first sermon, I said, the joy, of the joy of childbirth. One brand new mom come up to me and said, were you there? <laughs> Just so you know, the childbirth moment, even though it is joy knowing what God is doing, is pretty painful. So I get that, and, and I don't mean it that I understand. But just being able to be blessed by God in those moments to celebrate what God has done. Graduations, wedding celebrations, grandchildren. The wonderful opportunity to be able to invest so much money and give so much money and do so many things to our grandchildren. And then to see them, either our kids or our grandkids, come to faith in Christ. I mean, if you're a parent or a grandparent, one of the highlights of your life has to be when your kids find Jesus. Not that they graduated, not that they got into right college, not that they got a scholarship or any of those things that we think are the grandest things in their life. The greatest thing that you can ever celebrate in the life of your child or your grandchild is that they found Jesus. And if you had the opportunity to participate in it, man, you ought to celebrate that like you can't believe. That they found Christ. He's going to do a lot of other things in their life. Maybe they will have a scholarship. Maybe they will get into great college and the list goes on. But they found Jesus. And when they find Jesus, man, you ought to celebrate. I know we certainly do. When I know my kids found Jesus and my son-in-laws find Jesus and know Christ and my grandchildren found Jesus and know Jesus, man, you could, I, I'm, I could die today. Well, I hope I don't, but... You know, it just it doesn't get any better than that. But you know and I know that it also has an enormous amount of heartache. And hopefully brings you to your knees faster than anything else. Do you all remember Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities and how it starts when you were in high school and you had to read that book? It was the best of times and what? The worst of times. And most often that has to do with a family. Weddings or funerals, a rebellious child, losing a child. 
bearing a parent way too soon, betrayal and pain of divorce. God knew that. He initiated the institution of marriage and family. And in these commands, he said, I want you to protect that. I want you to protect that marriage. I want you to protect that family. I want you to put some barriers around it. I have given you a wonderful gift in this context called marriage. And I want you to do everything you possibly can to make sure you protect it with everything you have. Do not violate it. Please, I'm begging you, do not commit adultery. And just as words, going back to the one I said a moment ago, have the potential to kill the human spirit, so adultery has the potential to kill a marriage, or at least kill trust in a marriage. I hope you understand that my intention this morning is to bring truth with such an edge that it will keep you from ever going down that road and make sure you put a barrier. But I need you to understand that I understand that some of you have been betrayed, and I never want to bring up that hurt again because I've sat with you, and that's not my intention. My intention is to help protect those and protect your kids and protect the next generation and protect your marriage so that you understand that. So please understand, I, I know. There's one verse that came to my mind at the end of the first service where Jesus is talking to his, his, his children and he said, I just need you to know that, that a bruised reed God will never destroy and a burning ember or wick he will not snuff out. Which means he understands the pain you've dealt with, the pain you're in, and the pain you feel. You need to understand that my people may not understand, and they may not give you what you need. You need to understand that God will always give you everything you need and more. Very few things hurt a marriage more than adultery. I think we know what adultery is, but let me define it in your sermon notes. To adulterate at its core means to contaminate or to make impure. Literally, it means to add a foreign element. To add something in your notes that doesn't belong. You can adulterate a cake mix, put a ingredient in it that doesn't belong. The consequences of doing that aren't that big of a deal. But in the case of the marriage, the consequences are enormous and can be devastating. In a marriage, the added ingredient is another person. And most often it includes sexual activity, but not always. But it's still adultery. Because emotional co connectedness can be just as devastating as the physical. Because you've allowed into your marriage an ingredient that doesn't belong. In a book, The State of Affairs says this, Affairs aren't just about sex. When you've allowed the level of intimacy and closeness that should only be shared by your spouse to go towards someone else, you've crossed the line. If that's not your sermon, as it should be. When you've allowed that level of intimacy and closeness that's only to be shared by your spouse to go towards someone else of the opposite sex, you've crossed the line. An emotional affair can cause irreparable damage to a marriage, even without sexual intimacy. However you define it, God says, please don't do that. He said, marriage and sexuality are my gifts for you, but I need you to put a boundary around it. I need you to put a fence around it. I need you to protect it, not only for your sake, but for the sake of your children. All of these commands in Exodus were never given to restrict us. They were given to us as gifts. God knew we'd be pulled in a number of different directions, so he gave us these commands as incredible gifts. Put me first. Will you do that? Because I'm telling you, I know how to help you line up everything else underneath that. I know how you're wired. I know what you need to stay focused and to find balance. So let me give you a gift. Would you work these six days and stop on this one and remember who you were and what I did and where you are now? Because I know you. And when you get tired, you'll let your guard down. You get that? When you get tired, you'll let your guard down. So I need you to get some balance in your life. 
I created life. I know how precious it is. And I know how hard it is to lose someone you love. So don't destroy an innocent life. I, do you have an understanding of how powerful words are? So I'm begging you, would you lose, use them to lift people up and never to put them down or tear them apart? And in this command, he says, look, I know how precious that marriage covenant is. So don't add something that doesn't belong. I'm doing this, God says, for your safety and for your sanity and for you and the family and society at large. These boundaries I'm putting around you protect you for generations. Ignore them and you will pay a dear price. Not only you, but generations to come. See, the problem with a lot of people, we don't like boundaries or restrictions. These are not restrictive. They're to protect us. But let me remind you, there's a price for defying the boundaries, and they're enormous. In all of my years of ministry, one of the hardest things I have to deal with is that. I've seen the impact that it's had on families, on spouses, on children, on the church. I still remember this day until I lose my mind, whatever that may be, of a 35, 37-year-old girl asking me with tears streaming down her face, when do I really get used to this? Because they told me I would. When will I really adjust? Because they said it would come. I've sat with the brokenhearted. I've seen the arrogance of the betrayer. I sat with the children who just want a normal family life. I sat with a pastor friend of mine who after restoration and healing took place said, I honestly, Denny, could have never believed the impact that it had on my family. You and I both have probably at some point or the other seen the impact that it could have on a church. It breaks trust and confidence in the institution of marriage, which some people are saying, I don't know if I want to get married. Because I've seen it, I've heard it, I know it happens all the time, and television makes it look so not a big deal. Some have argued that recovery from betrayal is harder than recovery from the death of a spouse. I know that's hard to believe, but think with me for a moment. When a spouse dies, you've got a lot of wonderful people around you. I did a funeral yesterday, and Harry was sitting here with a hundred and some people, and hundreds of them flowed through on Friday down at Thompson Miller and just said, what a wonderful relationship, how God blessed you in these 50 years, and the list was endless. When there is adultery, you don't know what to say, and many people choose to say nothing, and no one knows what to do. When a spouse dies and you go to the funeral home, you talk about how wonderful that person was, right? I mean, you walk into the funeral home and say, wow, do they look great. They're dead. But we say, wow, do they look great. I'll never forget one older lady who just recently died. And I walked into the funeral home to see her and be with her when her husband passed away. And she said, look at him. For a dead person, he looked pretty good. I mean, I'm a communicator for a living. I did not know what to say to that. I said, you're right, looks wonderful. Other than being dead, he looks wonderful. And we do, we all talk about it. Every time we go down there, we always say how wonderful they look. Even if they don't, we always say they look wonderful. But what do you say to the person who committed adultery? And what do you say to the person who had adultery committed on them? They've got to deal with loneliness, feelings of betrayal, broken promises. And some have to sadly deal with the subtle implication that if they would have somehow done something better, it would have never happened. There are a lot of reasons that people end a marriage. Loss of a child, physical abuse, addictions, financial pressure, ruin. The pressure of that me first generation that somehow they've caught to believe that whatever makes you happy is okay. It's not true. 
But very few pressures in a marriage come as close as the emotional devastation of an affair. The issue has a huge impact on the family and society as well. So God says, for your sake, for your family's sake, for your children's sake, for the church's sake, for a generation's sake, I'm just asking you, don't do that. Don't add something that doesn't belong because there's an enormous price that goes with that. In the back half, I've given you, you need to clearly understand, there's a whole message I could give just on this subject. I've done it before. Of ways to remain faithful. Let me give you a few. Make a commitment to God's standard. How can a man keep his way pure? That's what Psalm says, by following your path. By drinking from your own well. By taking water from your own cistern. Magnify, and I can't accentuate that one enough, magnify the consequences of sin. Proverbs 6.32, I think that's the verse that says, adultery will cost a man all that he has. And that is just not financial. You will pay a financial price, but it's way bigger than that. Third one is manage your mind in your sermon notes. 2 Corinthians 10.5, which takes every thought captive, and James gives us the progression of sin. When you think, you know, you go through your day and you look back and you say, boy, I shouldn't have thought that, shouldn't have read that, shouldn't have looked at that, shouldn't have watched that movie. And you get all of that. But what Paul says is you've got to take every thought captive. And you go, my Lance, that's an enormous amount of responsibility. And he said, yeah, but I know in James what it's going to do. Because you'll see, and then you'll think, and then you'll want, and then you'll act. And whether you believe that is true or not, it doesn't matter. Because it's true. What it doesn't matter is whether you believe it or not. Because it's true. What you see, you'll begin to think about. And you'll begin to think about it too often if you don't take every thought captive. And then you'll want what you don't have. So you've got to understand the weight of that and the progression of sin that keeps us going down that particular path. Guard your marriage. Minimize the opportunities for affair to happen. Make sure you do everything else that you possibly can to protect. To build some safeguards into your life, whatever they may be. They may be. I can give you a dozen of them. I can give you ones that I've had. I can give you ones that our staff has. But build some safeguards into your life. Do everything you can to protect what you know you've been blessed with. And then finally, maintain your marriage. You've heard me say it before of all these couples that stand before me. And for better, for worse, Richard Porsig says, yeah, we're going to do that. Not a one of them has said, can we get back to you next week? No, they all say, certainly we'll do that. I have found that we have been blessed here at CAC in the last 10 years. I've started sending anniversary cards to people who have been married 40 years or more. And what I found is there's a lot of folks in our congregation who've been married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 65 years. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful models here of people who've been blessed by God, and we've been blessed by God to watch them. So when you see them every once in a while and say, look, you know, I'm just so excited to see that you're celebrating your 10th or 15th or 20th or 40th or 50th. Thanks for being a great model to us here at CAC. We just got married in this last five years, and we've watched your life. Thank you for being such a godly model of commitment to one another. I say it to couples after one of the other passes away. Thank you for modeling to your family, Harry's case, 50 years of what it means to keep that commitment. I've been blessed to be together with my wife for 46 years. Last year, God just overwhelmed us with a gift on our 45th anniversary. And we were getting ready to board a plane, and this couple looked at us and wondered what we're doing. And I said, we're going to celebrate anniversary. She said, which one? I said, 45th. Really? 
I said, yeah. And she looked at my wife, who does not look her age at all, and said, 45? I said, yes, ma'am. But we got married in West Virginia. She was 13. It didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> she laughed the whole way on the plane. If, if you're from West Virginia, I apologize. Uh, it was just one of those ways that I wanted to catch her attention, and obviously I did. We have been royally blessed here with some godly images of commitment to one another. So when you see them, you really ought to thank them and say thanks for doing that. If you're in that case or in that situation, I'm just saying God is so clear because he loves us so much to want to make sure that we do everything we can to guard this wonderful gift that he's given us in marriage. And my responsibility is to tell you the truth. And for those of you who have had the pain of that, my responsibility is to also say, I am so sorry that you've had to deal with it, but I know you would want me to help others and protect them as you wish someone would have protected you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power that goes with it. And it's not just words written on a page. But you understand who we are and what our nature is and what our inclinations are and what our weaknesses are and how important it is to build some parameters and boundaries and guidelines in our life so that we're not just running our own way, doing our own thing, and then paying the price of it later. And so continue to walk with us in this journey. For those that are married all over this auditorium, continue to walk with them so that they can enjoy the relationship. For those that have been hurt by the pain of what we've talked about this morning, please bring healing. I love the fact that you will walk with us through the valley of death itself, even if it's the death of a marriage, and you will never leave us and never forsake us. So I'm thankful for your promises. We love you for your word. And we ask you to continue to walk with us as we live it out day after day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Next Sunday morning, we wrap this series up. You don't want to miss it because of some of the reasons behind all of this. Family experiences right now, 10 minutes from now, kindergarten to fifth grade. Enjoy it. We've got some great lessons they want to teach you. God bless you. Have a great